Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to begin reading at verse 16. Simon Peter, you're, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Brother Tim, you lead us. Let's pray together again this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. We thank you for the church. It's this church, the church, that you sent Jesus from heaven to die for. The church made up of the redeemed of all ages, even before Christ came. Those that were under the law and under the old covenant were not redeemed by sacrifices or by keeping the law, but based on what Christ would do on the cross. And so, Father, we look back at the cross and we look for what Christ has done to accomplish our redemption and make us part of your people, the church. We ask that you would teach us this morning, Lord, about what this means and stir in our hearts affections for your church, affections for your purposes in the world, and for yourself, for Christ. Do it for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Soon, some of you, uh, we have a few students I think are going to college, and, and of course some high school students in public school will be signing up for classes and uh, for those of you signing up for college classes, perhaps, there's different factors that come to mind when you're going to take a class. And I guess one of the factors uh, should be that what's going to be required of you for the class. I remember going to college or going to seminary that, you know, I'd, I'd want to know what's going to be required of me. And if I could, I'd get a hold of a syllabus ahead of time. If you know what a syllabus is, syllabus would be a piece of paper, a couple pieces of paper, depending on how hard the class was, might be five or six pieces of paper describing the class the desired outcomes for the class, describing what uh, papers you're going to be writing, how many books you're going to read, how many quizzes you're going to take, the final exams, and all this type of stuff would be on that syllabus. So you would know exactly what you're getting yourself into. So that was something I'd be very concerned about when I signed up for a class. The second thing I'd be concerned up about signing a class, and you know if the syllabus is going to be too hard, if I got a hold of the syllabus that first day of class, and I found out the class was too hard, I would drop the class and go sign up for a different class because it wasn't what I expected. That was one of two reasons I might drop a class. The other reason is if I went to class and I looked around and I didn't see any girls I might be interested, then I might drop the class too, to be honest with you. That's how why I dropped some classes at times too. But I'm revisiting that first reason, first of all, for thinking about the expectations ahead of time, thinking about maybe taking a job, and if you're going to take a job, you want to know how much time is going to be required. You know how much it's going to pay, but how much time is it going to require me to be away from my family? Or how much, how much is it going to require me to actually do physically? Uh, or if you're going to uh, 
pursue a career path or, or, or to pursue a degree. You want to know how many classes or how many hours of credits you're going to have to have in order to earn that degree or how am I going to spend the rest of the summer? You want to know exactly what's going to be expected of you. When it comes to following Jesus Christ, we need to know exactly what's going to be expected of us. The Lord Jesus is dealing with his 12 disciples here. One of them is a fake disciple. Just like we can have people that are identified with the church and not be part of the church, so was Judas. But here are the disciples with him, and the Bible describes the disciples in Matthew chapter 16 as having little faith. Earlier, there are some people called Sadducees and Pharisees who are Jewish leaders that have no faith. And Jesus is very concerned that his disciples who have little faith not be influenced by Pharisees and Sadducees who should know better but don't believe in Jesus. They have no faith in Jesus. Better to have little faith in Jesus than no faith in Jesus. And Jesus doesn't want his disciples influenced that way. And so he's preparing his disciples who have little faith to be strong in faith because the road ahead is not going to be easy. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's not going to be easy. In fact, if you look in your Bible in verse 24 in chapter 16, you'll notice Jesus later in this passage of Scripture, he describes for them just what it's going to be like to follow him. He says in verse 24, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So following Jesus is going to require you to deny yourself, to not do what yourself wants to do. It's going to require you to carry your cross. That's like an instrument of torture back in that day, right? How they would execute someone. It'd be like saying today, I've got to take up the electric chair and put it on my back and, and follow Jesus. Or I've got to take the firing squad and put the firing squad on my back and follow Jesus. In other words, I need to always be aware that execution and suffering and death await me as a follower of Jesus. I've got to be willing to lose my life for Jesus' sake if I'm going to follow him. So what this means, what we're getting ourselves into if we're going to follow Jesus is there's a road ahead that's not going to be easy. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for that. This little faith of the disciples needs to grow and grasp some essential truths about who Jesus is. Because it's kind of like signing up for that college course or taking that new job. They need to know exactly what's going to be required of them if they're going to be effective disciples and not be surprised about what lies ahead. One of those things, these, the little faith of the disciples needs to grasp is exactly who Jesus is. They need a firm, self-owned, God-given, heart-level conviction about who Jesus is. And we call that Christology 101, the study of Jesus 101. They need to be convinced about who Jesus is. So Jesus turns to them and says, who do people say that I am? And they tell him, and he says to them, but who do you say that I am? Because there needs to be a point where they come to, come to grips with exactly who Jesus is and not depend on anybody else. But a second thing they need to have in their minds and in their hearts is a clear understanding of what the church is. And that's Ecclesiology 101. Now, ecclesiology is not a word we go around using a lot, is it? But ecclesiology comes from the Greek word church, ekklesia, that I'll talk about here in a little bit. And it means the study of the church. And so if these disciples 
And if we as disciples are going to be effective for Jesus, then we need to grasp about, really grasp and understand more fully who Jesus is, but we also need to know exactly what this church is and, who this, and what Jesus is up to. If I were to say to you after church today, church is over and I'm walking out to my big blue truck and I see you out in the parking lot out there and I say, hey, come on. That might seem kind of strange if I said that. I said, well, well, just come on. Come on with me. Well, preacher, I've got this to do. No, no, just come on with me. Let's go. Come on. Jump in the truck. You can ride with me or just follow me. Just come on. Well, that's great. Pre no, just come on. But preacher, what exactly are you going to do? Just come on. Don't worry about that. Just come on. Wouldn't you want to know what I'm, what I'm up to before you sacrifice the plans for the rest of the day? I mean, you trust me, I'm your, maybe you do, I'm your pastor after all, you, you, you're convinced that, about that, but you'd least like to know what I'm up to, where we're headed, what's going to be required of you, where are we going? Well, in a much greater way, Jesus is saying to the disciples, come on, follow me. And they've been following him. And they're convinced about who he is. They know they can trust him. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. But where are they going? What does follow me mean? What's he up to? And this is what he tells them in the verses we read this morning, folks. He says again to Simon Peter, he says, Simon Peter, you didn't get this on your own. It came from the Father, first of all. But then he says in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What Jesus is telling Simon Peter is this is what I'm up to. He's telling all the disciples what, see the question comes to mind, why does Jesus say that right here at this juncture? G Peter's just made this great confession about who Jesus is. Now Peter's gonna inform Peter and the rest of the disciples about what he's up to because they need to know what he's up to and what his mission is and what Jesus' purpose is because if they're gonna follow him, which is gonna mean they gotta deny themselves, they've gotta take up their cross, they've gotta, they've gotta lose their life for Jesus' sake, they gotta be willing to rearrange all their priorities and saying, okay, I've got these classes to take for this fall, but you know what, what does Jesus want me to do? I've got this job offer I can take, but, but what does Jesus want me to do? That means if I'm gonna follow Jesus, I'm gonna lose my life for his sake, I've gotta be willing to rearrange all my priorities and say, what is it that Jesus Christ would have me do? That's what it means to follow him. To lose my life for his sake means, okay, here's this attractive looking individual and, and I'm attracted to them and I've been single a long time and I sure would, but, and they look good. But I'm gonna lose my life for Jesus' sake and the Bible says not to be unleakly yoked with an unbeliever, so I can't. I can't do that. If I'm gonna lose my life for Jesus' sake and I'm, I'm seeing a job opportunity that looks good or you're seeing this girl or this guy that looks good or you're seeing this other opportunity that looks good And suddenly you understand you can't do that really if you're a Christian. You're going to be compromising too much. You've got to be convinced about who Jesus is then. And you've got to be convinced about the nature of his church and what Jesus is up to. Because following Jesus is not going to be easy. It's going to require some self-denial. It's going to require some sacrifice. It's going to require some things saying no to some things that look good because it doesn't line up with Scripture. Amen?
So what is it about this church, this Ecclesiology 101? What is the church? What is it that I need to be able to pass? They, they, they've passed Christology 101. What about Ecclesiology 101? And I'm going to say up front, you know, in your sermon outline, for those of you who got it in front of you, I'm out of your bulletin, there's about six, blank, six points in there. And I'm not going to get to all six of them this morning. So you can just take a little homework with you and go home and see if you can figure out what's supposed to go in some of them blanks. I ain't even sure how far I'm going to get this morning. I may just get to the first one. We'll see. Maybe get two, maybe get three. I don't know. Maybe change my mind and get to all six, but we'll see. But this is our task this morning is to ask ourselves, what is the church? What does Jesus want us to know about this mission and what he's up to that's so pivotal so that we'll be willing to make the sacrifices necessary to follow him and join him in the purposes that he's on. Well, number one, the church is a family of called out followers of Jesus. The church is a family of called out followers of Jesus. Now, I could say that the church is a called out family of repenters, because that's what a follower is. I could say the church is a called out family of believers. That's what the church is. But it's not just people that say they believe in Jesus, it's people that follow Jesus. It's people that are always repenting, always saying no, always saying no to what looks good but doesn't line up with Scripture. That's a repentant life. That's the life of a believer. That's a self-denier. I could say, so I could say the church is a family of called out self-deniers. I could say the church is a family of called out cross-carriers. The church is a family, called out family of losers. Now that wouldn't sound very good, would it? We're called out family of life losers for Jesus. That's what we're talking about. The church is a called out family of followers of Jesus. And notice here in chapter, in chapter 16, verse 18, where he says to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. That word, ecclesia, we need to think about it, what that means for just a few moments. It's its first time that the word church, translate that word church, is used in the New Testament. And it's only used two times in the, in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Once here in Matthew 16 and once in Matthew chapter 18. And the reason I mention that, it is not Jesus' purpose to, to go into great detail about the church at this point. But when we read the letters of the New Testament that Paul writes and other letters of the apostles, we see that the church is formerly that made up of Jews and Gentiles who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and is referred to as the church. It's a community of followers of Jesus. So a church, when Jesus uses the word church, this is somewhat new to the disciples. It would be as if Jesus is saying, upon, Peter, you're a rock, and upon this rock, I will build my assembly. In its most basic form, the word church means assembly. It means a crowd. If you were to read in Acts chapter 19, the apostle Paul was uh, preaching there in Ephesus. In Ephesus, there was a very idolatrous city and they all got mad at Paul because some of the people that sold idols were starting to lose business because they were turning from their idols to serve the one true and living God. So some of them got them stirred up about Paul and they decided they want to kill him and an assembly was gathered together. And when you read in Acts chapter 19, the word that's used there several times is, is ecclesia, assembly. So this riot 
that's trying to kill these uh, people, this crowd of people that's trying to kill these Christians like Paul, they're referred to as ecclesia. They're referred to as the church. So the church in its most basic form is simply a crowd of people. It's an assembly. But as you read this passage of scripture, you find out Jesus is not talking about just, a, just calling an assembly, just saying, hey everybody, let's meet up. Let's have a crowd of people. That's not what Jesus is doing here. In fact, notice what he says here. We see that he's up to something much more permanent than just an assembly and just a crowd of people. Notice he says in verse 16, but who do you say, or excuse me, verse 18, I tell you, you're a Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. He says, I will build something. Jesus is just not calling a crowd of people together, calling an assembly together. He's building something. It indicates a more of a permanence, right? I'm gonna build something here. Something's gonna go together. Then he refers to Peter and making a pun on Peter's name. He says, Peter, you are this rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon this rock is like a foundation. Again, indicating a permanence. This is not just an assembly. The church is not just a crowd of people. It's something more permanent, more uh, that, that Jesus is doing. And then he says at the end of the verse, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is not just a crowd. The church is not just a crowd, not just an assembly. It's something that Jesus is building. It has a foundation, and it's something that's gonna last forever not just some temporary crowd of people that get together. So we're beginning to see something about just what this church is. Again, the definition I've given you, the church is a family of called out followers of Jesus. And another, another way that we could describe this word ecclesia church is it refers to as called out ones. Kind of the same use of the word assembly. So when Jesus says here, Peter, you're a rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church. It's like he's saying, I will build my assembly. I will build my crowd. I will build my called out ones. It's like, come on over here. We're having assembly time. Just like at school when I was growing up. Hey, we're having an assembly this morning. Great, we get out of 30 minutes of English class. We can go to assembly time, right? But it's more than that. Jesus is not just having a crowd. He's not just calling people out for a meeting temporarily. It's not just a meeting. The church is something more than that. Now I want to call your attention back to verse 16. When Peter had given the answer, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he gives that answer in verse 16 to Jesus' question. How does Peter get the answer right? Verse 17, look at your Bible in verse 17. Does, does Peter just come up with this on his own? Verse 17 says, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. How did Peter get it right? How was this revealed to him? How is it that the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't get it right? But Peter does, and presumably the other disciples later on, and they do except for Judas. How is it? Because the Father revealed it. Because he was blessed. The first word he says is, blessed are you, Simon Bar of Barjona. Not because he and of himself is smarter than anybody else. Not because he has figured it all out himself. Not because he has a disposition that is more spiritual than anybody else's. He is blessed because the Father revealed it to him. And the Bible describes 
that the reason that we believe in Christ, that we are true followers of Jesus, is because we are blessed. The Father has revealed this to us. The Bible describes us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as, as the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, lest they should believe and be saved. But God in his mercy and grace has shown the light of the gospel in our heart to help us see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we've turned to Christ. The lights have come on. The blinders have, have left our eyes and we follow Jesus. Most of us here this morning, like Peter, most of us I believe, but not all of us, but most of us here this morning, we're here because we're blessed, amen? God has revealed who Christ is. We didn't come up with this on our own. He called us out. Remember what church means? Called out ones. We were walking in darkness, just like we sang about, all I have is Christ, that song will go. We were walking in darkness, away from the cross. He called us out. He called our name. He made the cross look glorious to us, not foolishness like most of the world does. How do you explain that? That's a divine, sovereign calling out, lifting up of the blinders off our eyes. We are blessed. And so we gather here on this first day of the week, not just as a crowd of people, not just in an assembly, but we're blessed. And we say, we come this morning, we say, well, pastor, this morning, you know, this happened on the way to church or this week, this awful thing happened in my family or, or my heart's breaking over this situation in my family or my body's hurting. We got all those things going on in our minds. But we're here this morning, for those of us who have been called out, reminding one another in Bible study and singing songs together and, and later this morning when we take part in the Lord's Supper. That despite all these heartaches that we're going through, the worst thing that can happen to us is not going to happen. That's why we meet on the first day of the week as his church. The worst thing that can happen to us is not going to happen. The church is a family of called out followers of Christ. So when Jesus says here, I tell you, you're a Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Just what is Jesus talking about building here? He's talking about building a family of believers who are followers of himself, who deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. Folks, he's not talking about building a social club. He's not talking about a friend place where we come to see our friends, even though we have a lot of friends in church. That's a great thing. He's not talking about a place where we show up on Sunday mornings and, and we say, hey man, great to see you today. You know, it's great seeing our friends. Great to see you today. Then we sing some hopped up songs and hear a hip message and we go see our buddy again and we say, dude, it was great seeing you today. Hope we see you next week out the door. Next Sunday comes, hey man, great to see you. Great to see you. Sing the hop songs, hear the hip message. Hey, see you again, dude. And that's it. That's nothing. You understand? There's a context for fellowship to take place in that and friendships and all that's great, but that in and of itself is not the church. The church is not just an assembly. It's not just a crowd. This thing that Jesus came to build is not just that. This, this church that Jesus came to build is a group of people, a community called out from the world set apart from the world who are following him. Not just meeting together on Sundays, which is great. We have a great service here and it's wonderful and all that and it's necessary. And Jesus says not to forsake your assembly of ourselves together. 
But if we come and assemble and we don't stir up one another to love and good works, then therefore we've not done what Scripture says to do. So this thing that Jesus is building is a community of believers indwelt by the Holy Spirit who are following Christ, who are repenting, who are self-deniers, who need each other and love each other. The church is a family of called out followers of Jesus. You know, sports teams love to say, you know, we're a family. Especially if a sports, you know, basketball team's been successful or something like that. Say, what got y'all through? Well, we, nobody, everybody was against us, but everybody, the media was against us. You know, everybody always say that, right? Media, nobody thought we could do it, but we did it. And, and you know what? We're a family. You know, we, we're really family. We just, there's just love among this, in that, in that locker room. We just love each other so much. We just love each other. We're a family. Is that what we mean when we're talking about we're a family? Oh, we just love each other. We just love. Come here, brother. Let me give you a hug. Oh, it's so good to see you. I just love you. And we hug each other and we shake each other's hand and we say we love each other and then we do our little routine things as a church and go through our emotions. And we don't love each other enough to get to know each other until we have about the truth about sin in our life or study the word together. We are a family of believers, not just, not, not just some loosely connected emotional thing. Uh, young people say that join gangs say they join gangs because they feel like family. So when we say that we're a family of brothers and sisters in Christ, what are we talking about? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We say we're a family. It's not because of a feeling we have when we get together, even though I often have a wonderful feelings when I'm with my church family. You don't want to minimize that. But the basis of our family relationship of being a church as a family is not feelings. It's our common profession of faith in Christ. It's our faith. We don't come together to see our friends on Sunday mornings. People tell me that all the time. Well, I, I just want to have friends. Well, I want to have friends too. But our purpose is not come here and see our friends. I can do that at the, I can do that at the ball game or anywhere. I'm not coming here to see my friends. I'm coming here to be with my family. There's a, there's a bond we have that goes much greater than some uh, surface level friendship. And even this, oh, we're family. We love each other, right? It's, it's more than that. We're family because there's a covenant that's been made that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2 verse 19 in which those who, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, if they have faith in Jesus, they are members of the household of God. And how did that house get built? That's what Jesus is talking about here. I will build my church. That's the household of God made up of Jews and Gentiles. That's, his fa that's the family of God. The church is a family of called out followers of Jesus. And we remind ourselves that here at First Baptist Church, we have the Lord's Supper here later this morning, here in just a few moments. Um, we do the Lord's Supper here, we call it close communion. It's not closed, it's not open either. And I won't get into the differences on that. But what we mean by that is you don't have to be a member of this church in order to take part in the Lord's Supper. So you may be a member of another church visiting with us this morning, but you're welcome to take part in the Lord's Supper if you're, if you're a baptized believer. 
Because we recognize the church is much bigger than First Baptist Church. We're not the only church, right? That the church is made up of all those who trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. So we try to remind ourselves by reflecting that and who we allow to take part in the Lord's Supper if in fact that person's been born again, they're a baptized believer. So the church in fact is one big universal family, amen? And the question is, I may get into more next Sunday, is just how big is this family, this big family? And I've got a feeling that a lot of people want to think that the big family of God is much bigger than it actually is, that we're ready to open outstretched arms and just call anybody a brother in Christ that names the name of Jesus without asking too many questions about what exactly you mean by the name of Jesus. You see, in this passage of Scripture here, is often used to justify things about the Pope of the Catholic Church. And therefore, uh, when it says, upon Peter, you are this rock, then people begin to say, well, this rock, Peter, you're this rock. And so what was happening here is it said by the Roman Catholic Church that Peter's the first Pope. And, and when Peter got done being Pope, he he passed the reign on to somebody else and they became the next pope. So all the popes find their authority from Peter and they, they take it right here from this verse. And I want to say emphatically that that's wrong. And you say, well, preacher, what's the big deal about that? Because, uh, and I'll explain more tonight perhaps and maybe next Sunday, but I'm getting ready to close, I think, that uh, the church's foundation is not Peter, all right? Peter's part of the foundation. He's like the first rock in the foundation, but in fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Peter happens to be the first one to profess rightly about Christ openly and publicly here among the disciples. But he's not the only one that does. Ephesians 2, 20 again says the church is found upon the apostles and prophets. And what this means is that really the foundation of the church is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ as proclaimed by the apostles and found in the New Testament. The church's foundation is a proclamation of Jesus. What I want to ask you this morning, and I'll pick up back there next Sunday as the Lord leads, is this. Despite all, all I've said about all these other things, are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life? That's really what it comes down to. And folks, I didn't mention the Roman Catholic Church here just now to, to bash the Roman Catholic Church. People have always gotten upset whenever I mention the Catholic Church. I'll be just honest with you. Because they'll say, well, I've got friends that go to the Catholic Church and I've got family. Listen, I do too. So what I say this morning is out of love. When I, when I say I'm concerned about this papal succession, popes tracing that line, lineage down, and what's that got to do with us following Christ and not carrying our cross? Because the papacy in its history has declared that justification by faith alone is to be cursed. How are we saved? We're saved by trusting only in Jesus Christ and not in what the church tells us to do. Not in some pastor or anybody else. But it's only faith in Jesus. And one of the papal councils and at the Council of Trent clearly 
said, anyone that believes that you're justified by faith alone, let them be damned. And they have never, they've been, they've been counseled since then. In the 1960s, there's one. There's been opportunity to recant, but if they go back and change that, they've got to say the church was wrong. But there's this papal infallibility that says the church can't be wrong because the, they're speaking in the place of God. Their word is on the same level as Scripture. That may be news to a lot of you. And again, my heart's not to, to bash anybody, but it's simply to warn you. You need to trust Scripture alone for what you believe and practice. That's the foundation of the church, the truth about Jesus Christ. And then you need to trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And then we need to love people enough, whether they say they're a Baptist or a Catholic or a Presbyterian or an atheist or whatever they say they are, we need to love them enough to find out exactly what they believe and listen to what they're not saying. You may ask them, like Jesus said, the disciples, who do people say that Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And they may say a lot of good things. Well, listen to what they're not saying. How is it, how is it you think you're going to go to heaven? Listen to what they're saying and listen to what they're not saying. Are they trusting in Jesus Christ alone? Because the way the church is going to be built, Jesus is going to build it, and he's going to build it as we share the truth about the gospel with people. Amen? So I'd invite you this morning, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you've never repented and trusted in him, man, you need to put all your weight upon him. Not in trying to be good, not trying to, all that stuff's good stuff, but it's, it's like filthy rags in God's sight, I hope you understand. It's not Jesus plus anything else, it's only Jesus. We'd love to talk with you more about how God may be working in your heart. Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for what Christ has done. I thank you for the finished work of Jesus, that our sins are not something we try to make up for our own or, or go to purgatory and hope we have, can work it off through what somebody else has done in the treasury of merit from saints and all this kind of stuff that's not found in your word. But our hope is alone in Jesus Christ. Father, we recognize that all of, all of our minds and our mindsets are works-based when it really comes down to it. And it seems natural to us to think that, that we could be part of your church and part of your people by, by carrying our cross and denying ourselves. But Lord, we know that Jesus is the one that went to the cross and laid down his life. We're to carry our cross and deny ourselves in light of the finished work that he's done. Please make it right in our hearts. Help us to get this right, not just in our head, but in our hearts. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning who are having a really hard time about denying self and taking up their cross and having a hard time making decisions right now and rearranging priorities that reflect your word. I pray that you'd give them the conviction about who Christ is and, and what he's doing, Lord, in building this church and the foundation of your word that it's been built upon so they would, not, they would not do otherwise. They would not contradict what you've revealed. So, Lord, call in, call in your people and do your work. Build your church even today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand this. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.